Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy Christmas, everyone. I went well, very good. <laughs> I, I like that you did that. I'm still Crokey McCrokenstein. Uh, and I'm not Crokey McCrokenstein. You're not, no, you're, you seem to have avoided this logie. Oh, no, I'm not. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't whine about it. I am going to kick you <laughs> so far up your buttocks. My toe will be sticking out of your mouth. That sounds uncomfortable it's, for the both of us. It would be very uncomfortable, yeah. Happy Christmas. I am right in the mood for doing a Christmas episode. Are you? No. <laughs> no, by no means. I feel crap. Everything that can go wrong has gone wrong. Yeah. And apparently I'm stressed. So my doctor <laughs> well, tells me. You don't seem it, so... Not when I'm doing this, because this is a fun part of my day. My week. You look forward to it. Yeah. So it's it's going to be a downbeat Christmas episode. We're going to be that Christmas episode with the grotty Santa <laughs> and uh, like trading places. Yeah. You can be Mr. Mortimer and I'll be the other one. You know the two old dudes like Bob Ruffin Scatler. I will bet you <laughs> I can make Eddie Murphy a rich man and you can make Dan Aykroyd scum. And at some point in the film, just when it's getting a bit dull, Jamie Lee Curtis will take her top off. All right, now then. that's a Christmas movie. To divert the attention away from the casual racism. Because <laughs> there is a lot of casual racism <laughs> in that film. The whole film is just casual racism. It's funny though, isn't it? Oh, that, Come on, be honest. That gives it a pass, yeah. We watched it last Christmas, Trading Places it was on. And I put it on, because this was brilliant, I love Trading Places, said I... And you and your mum just rolled your eyes at me. I'm not a big fan of Eddie Murphy. Is this, no, well, I can't stand Eddie Murphy. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, Trading Places is the one time Eddie Murphy hasn't completely sucked. Yeah. Everyone says, Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop crap. <laughs> the only thing good about Beverly Hills Cop is Judge Reinhold. And when the only good thing about your film is Judge Reinhold, yeah. you've not got a good film. <laughs> so, no, don't, don't come to me with your Beverly Hills Cop. It's crap. But Trading Places is a great film, isn't it? Yeah. We sat there, and for the full two hours, you sat there wetting yourself. Because <laughs> you were like, this is going to be bad. I'm only sat here watching it because it's on. I'm just waiting for them to go to bed so I can play on the PlayStation. <laughs> and then you, you start going... And I must, it, it, it's probably the, the kind of stuff they got away with back then. Yeah, yeah, 1982, that was perfect. You, you can't get away with that now. It was acceptable in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> That's a song, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, that's as singing as I can go at the minute. So, yeah, uh, welcome to a froggy Christmas. Bum, 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 oh, uh, bum, 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 oh, uh. Was that a Christmas single? I've not. Was that one of Paul McCartney's Christmas? Do you not know the frog chorus? No. Really? Yeah. Knee, hand in hand, 
side by side, we all stand together. You've got to put this in that show, because okay. you're editing this Christmas episode. Right, yeah. Frog chorus, Paul McCartney. Okay. Make it so, number one. All right. Well, the, okay. the Christmas songs we get now are, you know, d- d- despite despite what's what's going on with with well-known actors and presenters in the seventies and the eighties, <laughs> our Christmas songs consist of uh, uh, my favourite line of the month: "Tonight we're reaching out and touching you." Oh, thanks, Bono. Yeah, yeah. I love being touched by Bono. I know. Oh, yeah. They changed the lyrics to that. They changed the lyrics to something really questionable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up, Bob Gelman. <laughs> and I'd like to stick my thumb up, Bob. Anyway, uh, should we do some emails? Alright. The emails will probably not be Christmas related. Because, you know, people. And one person has emailed in. Alright. Like Merry Christmas, and we're going to include it in this episode. Okay. Even though it means jumping the time tracks. No, it's a Christmas email. But it's a Christmas email of, of sorts. Anyway, Kurt Grunewald emailed in about Pee Wee Herman and other delights. He says, I can give you a bit of background on a few of the American names from the 1980s that caused you some confusion. Leonard Part 6 was a Bill Cosby movie that didn't fly. Speaking of people from the 70s and 80s that we used to have fond memories of. (laughs) Second, Oliver North was a controversial figure on the fringe of American politics. He was the central figure in the Iran-Contra hearings and was brought before a subcommittee for a grilling. He surprised everyone by showing he was a stand-up American soldier who got things done, and despite attempts to smear his name, he was able to answer and dispel any hint of scandal and deflect almost all the scrutiny and pressure to come out looking pretty clean and not the fall guy that most people thought he would be for the Reagan administration. Okay. What did we mention Oliver North? I don't know. I don't remember either. (laughs) I will take Kirk's words for it that we did. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Third, Pee Wee Herman. Oh, I remember mentioning Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, because we talked about him in the cinema. (coughs) Yes, we mentioned his uh, being caught in Flagrade Delante or whatever it's called. Yeah, well, playing with his his Pee Wee. Playing with his Pee Wee Herman, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And Kirk gave us a rather large history of Paul Rubens, and I now have an in-depth knowledge of him. (laughs) Ask me a question about Paul Rupert and I can answer it. Well, there is a quiz later. There is. Um, it was very well researched and we thank you for it, Kirk, but uh, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll skip the life and tiff times of uh, Pee Wee Herman. If you want to do a Pee Wee Herman podcast, Kirk, in addition to being the co-host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Service Invader podcast, which is Kirk's podcast about Namor. Yeah. But I honestly think you should do a Pee Wee Herman episode. Do you think Bill Bill Cosby? I don't think about Bill Cosby. Do you think he comes out with bit bop bibbity pump climax? <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> Bill Cosby had Christmas jumpers on all the time. <laughs> yeah. So did Mr. Rogers, but I bet he's next. No, do not be dis- dispelling. <laughs> do not be disparaging the name of Mr. Rogers, dude. Well, Mr. Rogers is kind of like our our. Chuckle Brothers. You don't want it to be him next, but you know what it is. It won't be him. It's like I'm a celebrity. It's not you. They've got this list of the of seventies TV hosts. It's like it's like a game show. Yeah. Noel Edmonds. It's not you. Cliff Richard. It might be you. Bono. It is you. <laughs> no, it isn't. In any way. Allegedly. Alleg- not even allegedly. allegedly. No. Bono is not guilty of any impropriety whilst wearing a bad Christmas shirt in the 1970s <laughs> and we are not saying that he is in any way are we, are we clear? we're clear yeah, yeah, yeah. okay Jason Trenner has emailed him <laughs> not it's not spam. you it's not you 
I've been called the Ant and Decker podcast. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. Hey guys, man, it has been too long. I thought he was going to be, man, I feel like a woman. <laughs> I got the 80s, 90s, and God only knows what else to cover. First up, I love your show, Steve. Thank you, Jason. We appreciate that. And the only reason I don't listen to it tends to be when I get over. You don't listen to it! Suddenly I've lost interest. <laughs> Jason's email continues. I, I only don't listen to it when I get overwhelmed with all the other things I listen to. Or what's on YouTube. Well, I'm glad we are less entertaining than cat videos. <laughs> Cats versus rabbit videos. <laughs> that was a cute video. Cats fighting with lightsabers. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that in the pecking order of entertainment, there are cats, more cats, Bailey's Batman podcast, more cats, and then us. Well, you know, cats with lightsabers does sound pretty cool. <laughs> cats with lightsabers is very cool. Have you ever seen that video? No. It is an awesome cat video. Do they have, do they have little robes? Or they, no, 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 they, they just have the lightsabers. Oh, okay. But it's very funny. Look it up. I heartily endorse cats having lightsabers. In fact, I think we should all have lightsabers. In yep. fact, if there's one piece of technology that I want invented, it's a lightsaber. So I can just cut limbs off willy-nilly. Yeah. Maybe cut off willy-nillys, I don't know. <laughs> but then does it not spark the controversy of how, how many sides your lightsaber has? No. It's a lightsaber. Yeah. It has one. So it doesn't have the two little bits sticking Mine out. doesn't, because I think if you wiggle your fingers, you could cut them off. Well... So it seems a bit silly design to me, but... <laughs> I've not seen it in the film, so it may have a contextual point. Yeah. But it does seem a bit, you know, if you get a bit of cramp and you just want to do the something, <laughs> ah, I've lost the tip of my finger. You just turn Jeez. it. Jeez. Obviously, you're not going to be stretching your hands in the middle of a fight. That's true. Yeah. But maybe when you're practicing, though, with a remote, because with a blast shield down, yeah. you can't even see the remote. So how are you supposed to fight? Anyway, should we carry on with Jason's email? Let's. Uh, I get, I'll start with the 90s. 1993 was the image guys had already moved on by that point. That was the year I got into comics and I stuck to Marvel through said 90s, which meant that Malibu opened up as it got bought by Marvel for whatever reason. Not complaining about you guys leaving out that company as they've got their own podcast that has covered them extremely well. And he didn't plug the podcast network. He didn't. You should have mentioned that Shag's podcast. Not Malibu. Know. I don't know. Or that Ultraverse. Shag does so much that I just forget what he's doing. He shows up, he talks, stuff happens. <laughs> I stop listening at the end of the show. It could be anything. He's on everything. Oh, and when you two complained about the young blood issue where it looked like Die Hard hit somebody with his crotch, everyone thinks that panel is bad. I'm glad, because it was crap. The X-Men pretty much were where I started my comic book reading. Yes, I started with the X-Men in the 90s, and I'm still a comic book fanboy to this day. Not sure what that says about me. I've been an X-Men and Avengers fanboy first and foremost, and even then I don't collect every issue. If I think the current creative team sucks, I'm gone. I enjoyed the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern issues, but as for the armoured Spider-Man, somehow Mr. Hyde learned of it, and in a sensational Spider-Man story set after Peter's unmasking and before one more day, had been putting teens through something like Peter's origin. They got themselves killed, mutated in horrible ways, or just died. With Mr. Hyde using all the various Spider-Man costumes over the years to dress them up in. I'm completely sure the story I just mentioned would have entertained you way more than the comic that you looked at. I think diarrhea entertains us more than the comic that we looked at. Yeah. It? At least something's happening. Web of Spider-Man is notable for being the only comic we have ever covered on this show that was so bad I made it into a paper airplane. 
And it did fly. It did, It got yeah, some yeah. decent error on it. So there you go, it was worth publishing for that, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it got good error. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. The, the number one fl- high-flying comic <laughs> of the 90s. <laughs> Toss it across the room and see how high you can get. Really enjoyed the spy comic you covered, Velvet, by Ed Brubaker. I did find it a little strange that the female execs wanted it changed to a young female agent, but I really need to track that comic down. And watch more Archer while I'm at it. Spy <laughs> stuff. You like Archer, don't you? I do, yeah. I only saw the first series, I've never seen any more. It was funny, I liked the, it. The last season is the best, Archer Vice. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Just for, just for Kenny down. Loggins' appearance. Kenny Loggins is in Archer. Yeah. So it's like when Phil Collins was in Miami Vice. I don't know. DC vs. Marvel. Ah, the amalgam stuff was awesome. And the best part of that whole thing. That stuff deserves a show. Man of Steel was an interesting choice for issue 200, but what can I say about a story that's not been said before? Some would say that when we did that episode, (laughs) that question could have been asked. (laughs) As for the 80s stuff, that was all interesting. Before my time as a comics reader, as I've made clear, so I don't have anything to say. Thank you very much, Jason Trenner. Well, thank you for your email, Jason. We very much appreciated it. Gave us a couple of good giggles, which we always like from an email, do we not? Mm-hmm. Post-crisis pre-DeFalco is this week's email from Chris Franklin. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Christopher. I join you in your admiration of Jerry Ordway. I was a huge fan of his All-Star Squadron work, so I was more excited to see him on Superman than Burn, since I didn't regularly buy his Fantastic Four. I know, I know. I was a semi-regular buyer of the pre-crisis Superman comics, but it was very obvious that a change was needed. As mentioned last episode, Schwartz was coasting to the finish line as he eyed retirement, so Burn, Wolfman and Ordway's arrival was a welcome change, and very exciting overall. Having said that, I found Wolfman's Adventures of Superman boring. I can appreciate what he was trying to accomplish now, but it was very much a drama with occasional Superman appearances. That's something I wanted to read as a kid. Ordway's art is what saved it for me, and the book didn't really take off until Wolfman was off it. In his defence, he has long admitted he had a severe writer's block during this period, and I think it shows. His Luther parts were really the only standout parts of the book, but the corporate raider Luther was his idea. Mostly. Both Byrne and Wolfman seemed to struggle with the new Clark Kent at first before he settled into somewhat of a hybrid between the pre-crisis take and George Reeves' hard-hitting reporter. It's hard to imagine any version of the character taking off and not helping a trapped civilian in need, however. Yeah, the more I think about that, the more I've got a lot of problems with it. Yeah. I mean, it's like people diss on Man of Steel and the ending of it, and in some cases, rightly so. But that was just as out of character, wasn't it? There's yeah. a guy trapped under that rubble. Hmm, Cat Grant's <laughs> breasts. There's a guy trapped under the rubble. Cat Grant's breasts. I'm going for dinner with Cat Brant. Brant. <laughs> Cat Grant, there's a guy trapped under that rubble. Well, maybe to appeal to a wider audience. He looks he at Cat Grant's more, breasts. More relatable, yeah. By ogling Cat Grant, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. Fair enough. I concur wholeheartedly. Yeah, i I got to confess, I'm with Chris. I think Wolfman's Adventures of Superman Run is a bit dull. Mm. Saved by Jerry Ordway's artwork. And Jerry Ordway would go on to bigger and better things when he when he was given free reign to do what he wanted on his own. Chris continues, I loved Barr and Davis's Batman run. It was the perfect blend of the classic Batman story formula with modern sensibilities. I was also very happy to see this version of the Mad Hatter and not the Alice in Wonderland inspired one. 
I had a reprint of this Hatter's first appearance, which provided the basis for both of Tetch's appearances on the 60s TV show. I really liked David Wayne's Hatter on that show, so I have a soft spot for this now-forgotten version of the character. You know, one of my favourite episodes of the Batman 60s series is The Contaminated Cow, simply because Batman was a pink cow. <laughs> awesome! Batman, brilliant. Okay. And he's pink cow. Hot pink. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's a brilliant... And David Wayne's great as the Mad Hatter. He really is cool in that one. But I love that episode. The Batman representing the... Uh, gay pride The community. gay pride community. Years before it was popular to do so. He's always been ahead of the curve, hasn't he? <laughs> the Dark Knight. In yeah. his pink cow. What a guy. Got to approve of that. I applaud that. Can well, you imagine Batman. that in the Nolan movies? <laughs> <laughs> I can't now imagine that. <laughs> That would be brilliant. Swear to me, <laughs> in his pink cow. Suddenly, isn't quite. Uh, does it doesn't quite strike fear into the heart? I will become a bat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> better yet, I will become a flamingo. <laughs> Let's not go dissing on the pink flamingo before you read Batman and Robin. Oh. Oh dear guy, he doesn't become a flamingo. Can you imagine a flamingo bursting through the window of Wayne Manor? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Just standing on one leg on top of the uh, his dad's bus. And then Batman stands on one leg on a guy. Oh, stop. Detective oh. work consists of uh, pe- pecking the floor with his head. Yeah, and standing on grass in one of those water sprinklers. <laughs> oh, dear me. I think we have just made the best Batman comic ever. Yeah, yeah. Get right on that. Oh, dear. Chris continues, Barr is a huge fan of Bill Finger. Often homaging his various story styles here, copying the giant props he would throw in for Sprang to draw. And of course, all of this does evoke the 60s TV series, which all in all was pretty faithful to that era of Batman. Something I've been saying for years, Chris. Brother from another mother. Barr does a straight-up 50s Batman story in The Brave and the Bold 200 with Dave Gibbons. I highly recommend that one if you don't read it. Oh, we have had that in the book. For ages, Brave and the Bull 200, and we've just never got around to doing it. I think we should at some point because okay. it is cool. Yeah, Dave Gibbons and Mike W. Barr doing the 50s Batman star. Who's the team up with? Batman! Ba- Batman and Batman? Yeah, it's Golden Age Batman and Modern Day Batman team uh, up. Okay. So Grant Morris would love it. Yeah. It was painfully obvious, continues Chris, the Bat Office was in disarray at this point. Jason's characterisation was 180 degrees from Collins, and in the next issue of Tech, mention is made of Collins' new origin. But Davis draws the punk Jason in the same sweater and button-up shirt that classic Dick Grayson wore. The puppet strings were really showing. Peter's proposal to MJ seemed very forced and not organic at all. The whole thing felt incredibly rushed, which is probably why it was so easy to take a sledgehammer to it years later, unlike the courtship of Lewis and Clark, which did gradually draw them closer. I remember going back and forth on this one to check and see if it really was John Romita Jr. Coletta seemed to have gotten carpal tunnel syndrome from erasing so much. (laughs) Very good. X-Men, again, didn't buy it, but that cover is awful. Very phoned in. Looking forward to the 89 books. Your pal, Chris Franklin. Thank you very much, Chris. I always like uh, 
receiving emails from you. Especially ones that send us down such magnificent type uh, <laughs> tangents as the <laughs> Pink Flamingo Batman. Yes, that, Flamingo Man. That could totally be a 50s Batman story. It could. And if it isn't, it should be. It's an Elseworlds tale waiting to happen. It is an Elseworlds tale, that's very true. Uh, we're going to jump the time streams and... Uh, skip to this email because it mentions Christmas Okay, uh, it's from Charlie Neumeyer it's always nice to hear from Charlie Civil War don't even bring it up <laughs> got your attention good this email has nothing to do with wars civil or otherwise what's so civil about war anyway <laughs> I'm writing to talk about Batman zero year first of all curses upon you both for making me read this it is the holidays and we have a baby now so I really don't have time to get sucked into an awesome Batman an origin story. I normally just let you guys do your synopses. Kudos to Michael. Zero year synopsis, by the way. Thank you. But origin stories are my kryptonite. Yes, I am the one guy, other than Michael Bailey, who has read all 328 retellings of Superman's origin <laughs> since 2006. So I had to read this. My first gut reaction is that I enjoyed it more than year one. Not to say year one isn't good, but zero year really sucked me in and it was hard to put down. And I can't wait for the direct-to-DVD adaptation that will have to be split into three movies <laughs> milking us anywho I won't take up any more of your time happy holidays the entire clan McLeland and that was from Charlie Niemeyer P.S. If my wife kicks me out for spending too much time reading Batman comics instead of entertaining the four month old I'm moving in with you guys well you're more than welcome but at the moment we've no kitchen so read the Batman comics too too uh, to Grayson yeah. yeah you should totally read your Batman comics to Grayson after all he's got the right name for it exactly yeah you know and it's not like there's been no other comic reading parent who, who hasn't read comics to those that's children. very very true you would be setting a, tre- a precedent Charlie and in 15 years time <laughs> you could have this groundbreaking idea to make a 3D brain drain podcast or whatever they're called in the future <laughs> where you and your son talk about comics yeah and it would be like why has no one ever thought of that PPS I just made you say PP twice <laughs> gotta love potty humour <laughs> oh kudos Mr Nimey and best wishes to you and Angie and little Grayson and we hope you have an exceptional Christmas in fact everybody who's emailed in and even if you've not emailed in Everyone listening to this, I hope you have a very good Christmas. We're going to take a break, uh, and I'm going to try and let my voice get better. Good luck with that. And then we're going to cover two, count them, two Christmas stories. Mm -hmm. But not two Christmas comics. No. No, 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 no. Back in a minute. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. We're back. Uh, and, and covering, I get to pick Yes, the first story. Uh, it's something uh, I've actually wanted to cover since it came out. That's however. very true. Well, due, due to it coming out, we didn't get to cover it 
uh, over Christmas. Last year. Last year. Because it was late, wasn't it? Yes. So uh, I decided to pick, as any long-running listener <laughs> uh, to the show would know, I picked a story called Happy. Um, nearing the end of uh, 2012, writer Grant Morrison Yay! began his move to independent comics following the end of his seven-year-long Batman run. Turning to Image, as so many other DC and Marvel writers did, Morrison announced Happy, a four-issue Christmas miniseries. Happy was a big thing during the time of its release, being one of the first Morrison's independence series, and also probably due to the first issue coming out the same month of the Las Vegas convention MorrisonCon in September 2012. Why did they not just call it MorrisCon? I don't know. That would have been a better name. Yeah. Uh, however... Despite the positive start, opinions on Happy changed when issues 3 and 4 were delayed, with the final issue of this Christmas story coming out in February 2013. Epic fail. Yeah, I, I read these as they were coming out as well. So you read the conclusion to a Christmas story on Valentine's Day? Yeah, I, I, I picked up the first two issues uh, from Forbidden Planet in Manchester, and then got the other... T- the other two issues as they came out I think you got me the last two though and I, I remember I would always have the first period on a Monday morning free so I would always sit in the sixth form centre on my own because no one else would be in at that time and I'd just sit in the corner next to the radiator and reading them did no one ever ask what you were reading? I don't think anyone could Ooh, look at him reading comics in the corner yeah because it would have been magnificent for him to still read there be big kid <laughs> and you just show them page one yeah and say really for kids yeah. Okay. The proliferation of four-letter words on page one, and then that guy being violently sick. Why these dog? <laughs> on it? You know, the beano. This is not. There is that. Um, I've done all the synopsis together as one big synopsis. So should we talk about the covers before we go into it? Yeah, uh, the four-ish miniseries. What I like about it, happy. The exclamation points in blue. Yeah, then it's cartoony. Yeah, which like, I, uh, chat, I, I quite like. The first cover, Dar- all by Derek Robertson. If you mentioned Derek Robertson did the art? I would have done it. Derek Robertson did the art. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first cover is our uh, central character, Nick Sachs, holding a gun in either hand while blue feathers come uh, to land around him. It's alright, isn't it? It's, it's, I stole you. It's me. I've been you this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's alright. He looks pretty confused on his feathers, so it's kind of set the stage for yeah. both the main characters. I mean, it's a Derek Robertson piece of artwork, so there's no bad here. No, no, no. But uh, it's just a white background with a central figure on it, so I do wonder if Stephen Lacey likes it at all. <laughs> He's not a big fan of white background covers. Is he not? As we have discovered on Fantastic Cast. Now, I normally quite like them, but uh, I would have to agree with Stephen though, that, that, you know, these kind of look like there's something lacking, don't they? Yeah... It's the thing with all the covers, because they all follow a theme. Yeah, number two's a grotty Father Christmas with a, an eyeball sticking out of his sack. Well, it would be a child in his sack. Because there's a child in yeah. his sack. So that's kind of appropriate given the top of the show discussion. Yeah. Uh, the third one's Grant Morrison covered in blood. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's called Mr. Smoothie. Right, but it's Grant Morrison, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Let's be honest, holding a power tool. And the third one is a little girl tied to a chair. That has Christmas lights all around it. And she's tied up in, in, in wrapping paper. Indeed. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we don't feel at all Christmassy because of events in real life. So we've picked a Christmas story that is not a Christmas story by any measure of a man until the very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't uh, it? But the thing with them is they're all good. Yeah. And they all kind of have the, the characters in them. 
yeah. just, they kind of strike me more as you know how movies do character posters yeah they're kind of like these the um, expendables yeah yeah there's nothing wrong with them and I do like the white backgrounds just making all the focus on them but uh, <coughs> they, all, they did all have variant covers Oh, did they? But because of how much research I put into it... You didn't bother looking at them. The first one, the first one had loads, because like I said, it was coming out with MorrisonCon, so it's it. I think everyone who went to MorrisonCon did their own variant cover. Oh, right. On the blank covers. Or actual printed actual ones. Actual printed ones. Oh, right. That's fair enough. I think it even had a convention exclusive cover as well. Oh. Have you never looked how much they are? No. No. I, I don't like to look at MorrisonCon. So much. Does it depress you? I'm still very bitter that about you it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Like I said, I, I found the video from his talk in Edinburgh when I went there. And if you go and check it out on, on YouTube, <laughs> you can actually see my little head uh, at the bottom of the screen for the entire <coughs> the entire video. Yeah, you're on YouTube. I am. It's my call well, to him. He was speaking about it on that, and I, I got very bitter about it. And he's saying, oh, it, it, it'll only happen once, you know. I'll never do it again. It, it had to be once, otherwise it wouldn't be special. And you're like, you bastard. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Well, Christmas stories have a, a long and storied history of being bleak as hell until they ended. Yeah. Everyone forgets that It's a Wonderful Life is about a guy who's trying to commit suicide. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah. You know, Scrooge is tortured. Yeah, a Christmas Carol. I mean, not physically. It, it's like, but um, he's put through an emotional ringer, isn't he? Psychological shock therapy. Yeah, but it all comes out happy in the end because it's a Christmas story. So as long as the, so it, it, it does fit in with those yeah. kinds of stories. So the the, root, the unwritten rule for a Christmas story is that as long as it has a happy ending, you can put the protagonist through, through whatever hell. hell you want. Yeah, <laughs> Joss Whedon watched a lot of Christmas stories, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah. Alright, go on, give us the, the lowdown on Happy. Uh, as we did say, Happy was by Grant Morrison and Derek Robertson. Hello world, here's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. We have to train with Nick Sachs is a a former detective who, unable to bring home the horrors of his job, started an affair with his partner. An affair that wouldn't go unnoticed by an enigmatic Mr. Blue, a man high up with many fingers in many pies, including the police force. Rather than work for a corrupt force for a corrupt man, Sachs refused Mr. Blue's threats, a decision that would cost him his job and marriage with his pregnant wife. Now, many years later, Nick Sachs is a hitman. A few days before Christmas, he is paid to kill the three Fratelli brothers. But what he doesn't count on is a fourth man, the cousin who, after working in a vineyard in Sicily for years, is desperate to work with his cousins. After killing the three men he was hired to kill, Mikey, the cousin, shoots him, but panics when he runs out of bullets, talking about a password to his inheritance. Sachs just shoots him, but with several bullet wounds, passes out in the street. Sachs wakes up in a hospital to his former partner asking him for the password he was given and an annoying blue streak flying around. The blue streak is Happy the Horse who tells Nick that he's Haley's imaginary friend and that Nick is the only one who can see him so he has to be the one to save Haley. 
disgusted with the human wreck Nick has become, his ex-partner leaves, and Happy tells him he needs to leave immediately as this is a mob hospital, with men on the way to torture him over the password. Mr. Smoothie is the man hired by Blue to torture Sachs, and accompanied by his lackeys, Smoothie is shocked when an IV drip smacks him in the teeth. Sachs, struggling to stay awake, attacks those who would have tortured him, brutally killing them. He rushes through the hospital, struggling to walk, with Happy following, constantly yapping on. Outside, he bumps into his partner once again, who asks for the password. But when Nick tells her that there is no password, and that she should just shoot now, she stands aside, allowing Sachs to escape from the car Happy picked out for him. Nick heads to his apartment, screaming at Happy along the way, and after a long rest, he has only 35 hours to save Haley. To prove that he is real, Happy agrees to accompany Nick to a poker night at Ladique's. At the table, Nick is mocked for his current shape and for speaking to himself. So sure in Happy's help, Nick bets his wedding ring. Happy does help him, but the other three men apart from Ladique get so annoyed and terrified of Nick that they fold, saying they're just happy to watch Nick lose. Nick doesn't lose, but Ladique says that Blue is on his way and insists that Nick stays to meet him at gunpoint. He tells Sachs not to reach for his weapon, and Nick asks what kind of weapon is a pen. The police find the four murdered bodies later that night, but by then, Nick is on the first train out of there. On the train, Nick still refuses to listen to Happy and rescue Haley, telling him that there is no happiness in life, especially over Christmas, but the train is stopped. One of Blue's men steps onto the train and finds Nick in the toilets. Nick shoots the man and quickly drags the body inside. With Happy still yapping, Nick tells him to go outside and see all the happy people on the train. He does so, but all of his colour drains as he sees the angry and hateful people sat down. He returns to Nick, miserable, and tells him he's right, but now he knows why Nick is the only one who can see him. Haley is his daughter. And then Happy disappears. Nick, shocked, looks at a nearby newspaper to see pictures of children who have recently gone missing to see Haley looking at him. He rushes, stops the train and runs away into the blizzard outside. Stumbling down the tracks, Nick finds a blue feather and begs for a miracle. He finds his way to a church and tries to speak to the priest, but sees a live image on the monitor of a room decorated with a Christmas tree, stockings hanging by the fire and children tied up with wrapping paper and tinsel. Nick sees a blue glow in the tree and recognises as Happy. He calls out to Happy who comes out of the screen. Nick then tries to persuade Happy to help him save Haley and works out the location of the set and leaves, shooting the priest on his way out. Nick storms the set as Happy finds a drugged up Santa shooting in the toilet who can see him. Nick is stabbed by Smoothie but shoots him in the face, knife still inside him. He is confronted by Blue himself, who says he doesn't like this as much as Sax but is simply supply and demand. Nick is then attacked from behind by the drugged up Santa but Happy shows up with backup the large group of imaginary friends attacks Santa and Nick grabs him before throwing him through the window. Trying to speak to Haley, Nick is shot in the back by Blue, but before he can finish the job, is shot by Nick's former partner, who finds him bleeding out by the wall. He tells her that Haley is his daughter and that he wants her to look after Haley and his ex-wife. As he fades away, Happy gives him a gift for saving Haley, and as the snow falls outside and the police clear out the room, Nick dies happily.
one get happy. <laughs> that was a bit out of tune, wasn't it? Yeah. Because normally I'm no perfect. <laughs> it has to be said. Uh, you can see why uh, Derek Robertson, who's outgraced the boys for a number of years, would be chosen to be the artist on this project. Nobody seems to relish drawing Tarantino-like ultraviolence, quite like the man who worked with Garth Ennis for a few years. Yeah. And uh, the art is magnificent throughout all four issues. Isn't oh, it? yeah. I but think this is my favourite uh, of, of, of all of his work. Of Derek Robertson's? Yeah. Even more than Transmat? Yeah. Really? His artwork, yeah. Really? It's it's, <clears throat> it's grown. So, like, Transmetropolitan is very detailed. This is ultra-detailed. Yeah, there is, um, there's almost a Brian Bolland-esque level yeah. of detail to this, which is, I presume, why it was so late. Uh, probably. But uh, given that it was a Christmas story, one would imagine it behooved them to get it out for Christmas. Yeah. But, you know, what can you do? I also really like how, not the main villain, but one of the main bad guys, Santa, is introduced on the first page, and he essentially tells them he has the missing children on the first page. Second page, then. All right, I was just going to say. Yes, yes, he does. I do like that the... uh, the level of profanity is quite high, but he actually takes the mick out of it. Yeah. When he says, uh, we can do without all this f- language. Yeah. Which I thought was quite funny, given that uh, all these two characters do is swear every other word. Yeah. Um, I like Nick. Nick Sachs is a really interesting character in this particular story. And he pretty much, he sums up the tone of the series. Yeah. Sachs is a hard-boiled type, a, a proper incorruptible detective who can't be bought even when they try and frame him to capitulate his honour ultimately costs him everything which is a typical crime noir staple and this to me seems to be Morrison writing a rather typical crime noir story but contrasting it with a typical Christmas story and Christmas story are the antithesis of noir in every respect so marrying the two together really worked. Hmm. It really worked rather well. I also really like how human Nick is. He gets shot, he goes to the hospital, he's tired throughout it all, and yeah. he's asleep, and his eczema gets worse throughout the As the, the story series. goes on, yeah, you'd think that he'd be rubbing some E45 cream into his face <laughs> yeah. or something like that, but he never does, does he? Um, it's very much a Morrison theme, isn't it? Yeah. Stories. He's a fan of stories. He's a fan of the power of stories. It's a recurring theme in his work. Mm. So, to put two, on the face of it, such disparate story elements together. Yeah. But they're not that different, really. As we mentioned, Christmas stories have a tradition of being quite bleak and miserable. Yeah. Until he gets in the end of it. But I think that's what appeals to him about it. And this thing with it as well, where Happy is the Christmas story. Yeah. And Sax is the noir story. And he's constantly fighting off Happy. And it's all the noir story until he finally gives in, and then it's the heartwarming tale of redemption it's supposed to be. Which was a lovely little meta yeah, line yeah. of dialogue in the story. So well, it's like the noir is fighting the Christmas through sax fighting happy. Yeah, well when we originally talked about this after I... Because I read this three times for this show. Did you? Yeah, because I actually really enjoyed it. Right. And the first time I read an issue a day, and then I went back and reread it all. Mm. And then I went back and kind of skim-read it again, but ended up being drawn into it yeah. again. 
And when we were talking about it before, long before we sat down to record this episode, it was a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? I think it was only last week. So was that? Yeah. It feels longer, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, I said to you, this felt like Grant Morrison imitating Garth Ennis mm. with the overly profane dialogue. But the more I thought about it, the more I think this was in taking the piss out of Mark Miller. Yeah. Do you think? Ennis's work, despite the violence mm. and the dark humour has a heart to it. Yeah. There's a lot of heart in Garth Ennis's work. Mm. When he wants to tug at your heartstrings, he can do it with the best of them. Oh, yeah. Whereas Miller's work is cynical and empty, mm. and is often the response of a writer who, who tried to do work that was bright and sunny when he was doing the Superman adventures, and it, he found it languished, it didn't sell. Yeah. But then he did the ultimate or the authority or whatever and discovered that dark, cynical and hollow shock value sold by the bucket load. And he's gone down the path of least resistance. Mm. And while Garth Ennis and Warren Ellis, who this also reminded me of, yeah. but it could, that largely could be the Derek Robertson connection more than anything else. Ellis and Ennis have both mocked the superhero genre, but I've never felt that Ellis and Ennis have told me I was stupid mm. for buying a particular book. Yeah. Whereas with Matt Miller, he's openly told you you're stupid for buying a particular oh, yeah, book yeah. in his stories. Do you think this was him taking the piss out of Miller? Um, I, I didn't read it as him taking the piss out of anyone. More so, I got he was exaggerating the two sides of ultra-violence and ultra-happy. Like, he was exaggerating the Mark Miller, Tarantino-esque, Garth Ennis dark, gritty, cynical. realistic, cynical, yeah, and exaggerated the bright, sunny children cartoon stuff and made them exaggerate them so much they contrasted so well, contrasting Nick with Happy. Because whatever else you say about Grant Morrison as a writer, he's not a pessimist. Oh, no, no. Is he? He could probably write bleak and gritty in his sleep. Yeah. But there's always an undercurrent of optimism to his stories. And the, well, he has said the darkest he ever went was around the time his dad and his cat had died, which was New X-Men, The Filth. Yeah. And essentially, The Filth was just his way of getting everything out there. So he's never been as dark as he was in The Filth, because that was his way of getting rid of everything. Bring it out of his system. Yeah. Because this... Happy, like you say, he's very optimistic and upbeat. And I I get that the idea of dropping Jiminy Cricket into a Lars von Trier film actually appealed to Morrison's sense of humour. Yeah. Because that's what this is, mm. isn't it? It is like having Tom and Jerry show up in the middle of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You're a little bit, what? Mm. All the way through it. I mean, and the dialogue is hysterical in places. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which isn't something I normally associate with Grant Morrison. His dialogue's good yeah. and clever, but I don't associate funny with him. Yeah. I don't recall ever reading a Grant Morrison comic. I mean, there are times I've wanted to toss him across the room, and there are times I've, <laughs> I've really enjoyed them. But I don't recall ever reading one and thinking, that was funny. Mm. Whereas with Garth Ennis, I've read an awful lot of his work and laughed out loud at some of it. Yeah. And they said it was the first time I read Morrison's dialogue and found it amusing, genuinely yeah, yeah, yeah. amusing, not being clever, not smart, not snarky. None of his characters spoke with that I'm the smartest guy in the room voice yeah. that Lex Luthor has nowadays, um, largely because of Grant Morrison. The, it was genuinely funny 
Tarantino piss take dialogue but again it's Grant Morrison so I kind of I thought that's the point it's stylized yeah it's stylized out the wazoo because it's it's um, it's Grant Morrison but Tarantino's influenced a lot of filmmakers and comic readers now to the point where Tarantino type dialogue sounds like a parody even Tarantino now sounds like a parody of Tarantino yeah doesn't he and I, he kind of skirted that line throughout this. Mm. It's very hard-boiled and gritty, and very profane. Yeah, but it's funny. It is, yeah. and I don't, I don't expect to go to a Grant Morrison comic book and laugh out loud. It, it, I think it's probably because of how human it is yeah. at its heart, and so you laugh at the bits where you shouldn't laugh. <laughs> you, you laugh at the things you shouldn't find funny. You know, that, that guy's just being hit in the teeth. That's that's kind of funny, isn't it? Well, not just he's, he's got his teeth missing for the rest of the issue. For which, me, you know. it wasn't so much the violence that was funny. It was um, Happy's line that you quoted, how about turning this into the heartwarming tale of redemption it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's funny. Because it's an in-story commentary line, yeah. which we expect from him. But at the same time, he's actually acknowledging to the audience, yes, this is a Christmas story. Mm. There is going to be redemption at the end of it. Yeah, it's, it's not, not just it's yeah. not just snow. Not quite how you would want there to be redemption. Yeah. But it's there. Um, um, but my favourite line in this was this, is this issue three. Yeah. Issue three. Sax shoots a guy through the chest <laughs> in front of a woman who's just out Christmas shopping. And he covers it up by saying, did you see that? His pacemaker exploded. <laughs> and the woman's like, oh, what? And she's not sure whether to believe it. He's like, it's okay, I'm a doctor. I've seen this before. And that was funny. Yeah. That was genuinely I, like, I, I kind of like how she just stood there in shock. And when they moved away, there was just a puddle on the floor. Yeah. That shouldn't be funny, but I think kind of It shouldn't be funny. But when Happy goes into the, um, the train compartment later, everyone's happy again. Yeah. After he leaves. And, and I don't expect Grant Morrison to be amusing, but this was very amusing. There was something about the scene as well where Nick tells him to go and see all the people shout at each other and Happy just stood there and all of his feathers just fall off him and he turns grey and his That bit was quite sad. Yeah. It was um You can see you can see the heartbreak in those tiny little cartoon eyes. Yeah, because everyone's not happy even though it's Christmas. Yeah. Because people are miserable at Christmas. Yeah. In a lot of cases. And that, that does make me think, in the next issue, though, Happy says, yeah, I know life's miserable, I know it's horrible, and I know people hate each other, but there is happiness into it. So there's a kind of contradiction between him shocked when he sees that and then him later on saying, oh, yeah, I knew that anyway. Yeah, but it worked. Yeah, It worked yeah. for the scene. And you could say that he was just... He was manipulating Nick... Yeah, to get him to go after Haley. It's kind of like a, a a meta commentary to the readers as well. Like Nick Sachs believes everything is wrong, so there's no point in trying, and he's so cynical, and he believes he shouldn't do anything because there is no happiness in anything. And Happy's just like, well, yeah, because life is miserable. That's the thing, but there is happiness if you go out and find if it. If you go out and look for it, I did like as well. It's issue three before we get Nick Sachs's origin, for want of a better term. But Morrison's handling of it is incredibly economical. Yeah. Each panel skips a certain amount of time, mm. doesn't it? So of four pages, we watch him from going being bright young thing, yeah. new detective on the block, to being completely crushed 
by the job that he's doing to spiralling into despair to being blackmailed to not falling for the blackmail to losing everything yeah. in the space of four pages hmm. and he then becomes once you learn that about him he comes, he does become quite a sympathetic character yeah and you do kind of feel that were, yeah he's made mistakes but he stands for what he believes to be yeah. right he's not a bad man he's just a man yeah and I like as well like you see his eczema gets worse as the story goes yeah. along because he doesn't have it when he gets married no it's something that develops the more stress he's under mm. as a policeman some nice little subtle character work throughout the entire bit um this was a pleasant surprise actually yeah. at first glance it doesn't appear to be a Grant Morrison story at all being far more a standard noir infused cynical and mean-spirited series, more akin to the work of, of Mark Miller or other writers. But you peel away at it. Like I said, I read this three times. Mm. And you, the layers to the story become more and more apparent. This is Morrison spoofing the work yeah. of other cynical, more mean-spirited writers, isn't it? Mm. That's quite clearly what he's doing. And as such, the themes of the story are still present in some of Happy's lines of dialogue. And the, the clashing of two such different kinds of stories, the optimistic Christmas tale and the downbeat detective story, is exceptionally well blended together. Yeah. He did a really good job with it. And yet, as we've said, Morrison's not careful of being overly pessimistic for long. Mm. And despite the story, it has a downbeat ending. The protagonist dies but at the end. Yeah. As befits its noir influences, that's a noir ending. The yeah. hero if there is even such a thing as a hero in a noir story, the hero of the story or the central character in the story does not have a happy ending. But it still manages to have that upbeat, happy Christmas ending. Yeah, it's, the thing with it is that he's done his job now, he's done the right thing and he saved Haley's daughter. Kind of selfishly that he only was interested in rescuing her when he found out he was his daughter, but we'll gloss over that. Yeah, well, well, well that goes back to what you were saying, that he's enlightened self-interest. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? That yeah. keeps him going. But he's done his job, and he did the right thing, and he paid the price for it. But there's the nice little bit where happy finally makes him happy. Yeah. When he dies. Yeah. Which is actually quite sad. But he dies with a smile on his face. Yeah. And clutching a blue feather. Mm-hmm. And it was actually quite a touching ending. It was, yeah. It was actually quite, quite heart-rending. It's, the thing that struck me about this as well, it's peculiarly routine mm. for a Grant Morrison story, isn't it? Yeah. There's no mind-bending stuff in this. There's no long, non-linear hijinks. I mean, other than the presence of a talking blue horse, yeah. there is no confusing elements to this story. No. At all. It's straightforward. It's as straightforward as he gets, really. Yeah, pretty, well, I thought this was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Forget that it's a Grant Morrison story. It's a straightforward story of redemption and Christmasness. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, other than is happy real. Yeah. There was nothing in this that that made you think this was a Grant Morrison whack job fest, mm. like he sometimes writes. But if he tells you outright if happy's real... He takes away from your interpretation of the story, doesn't he? Well, I think he kind of has to be. Yeah, because he's telling him stuff that Nick can't know. Yeah. So it's not like it's a hallucination and it's Nick's manifestation of what he knows anyway, subconsciously. 
when they're in the poker game, Nick can't know yeah, what yeah. her hands are unless he's counting cards. Yeah. Which is possible. Mm. But there's there's more elements of that in it. But even little bits like Nick puts together where she is. Because he's a former detective. Detective work. Yeah. But then Happy gives him the address. Yeah. But did he not get the address anyway by working it out? And Happy's just like, oh, speed things up. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. See? So, I liked that. But Haley also talks to Happy as well because you know, he's yeah, her imaginary friend. he's her friend. imaginary friend, yeah. And I like how it is an imaginary friend. It's not a hallucination. In fact, it's one, two, three, four, five steps above a, a, a hallucination. A hallucination. Yeah, yeah, I like that it's a childish thing, an imaginary friend. Yeah. So this was a pleasant surprise. Good. Uh, a very cynical Christmas story. <laughs> yeah. But we feel like being cynical this week, so deal with it. Do I have to ask you what you thought of it? Uh, probably not, no. <laughs> it's, it's pretty darn good. Why did you like it when you like more of his mind-bendy stuff? Um... It's one of those things where it gets really, really dark, because, you know, kind of, the, essentially, it's kind of touching upon uh, child pornography. Yeah. Which is one of the themes of it. So it gets really, really, really quite dark, if you look at it. But on the flip side of that, it gets really, really, really quite bright as well. So, in the same story that's about stopping a child pornography ring you're laughing out loud about a man getting shot in the chest. And he does stop the child exactly. ring. Yeah. So he does accomplish something worthwhile. And it's one of those things where as bad as it gets, it gets just as good. Mm. Yeah, that was quite a pleasant surprise, that. I enjoyed that. Because you know what I'm like. When you always pick a Grant Morris one, I'm always, which Grant Morris am I going to get? Yeah, well... Am I going to get the one I like? <laughs> now that I've changed your mind, I've got to I've pick carefully now. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You don't want to blow all your good work here by know. giving me something that makes me go, what the hell was this? <laughs> uh, anyway, my pick was Ant-Man's Big Christmas. Such a contrast. <laughs> yeah. I think you'll find... Uh, I only picked this because it was in the 50p bin not long ago and I'd never read it. Right. So it was an excuse to read it. Yeah. Basically. Uh, this was by Bob Gale and Phil Winslade. It came out Christmas 1999 as part of the Marvel Knights imprint and was quite prestigious given it was a square bound bookshelf comic costing $6. I got it in the 50p bin. <laughs> it's worth 50p. Yeah, yeah. I'll give it that. Maybe it was 75p. Either way, it wasn't a quid. It wasn't, it wasn't $6. <laughs> yeah. Let's put it that way. Well, with, with the exchange rate, isn't $6 about $75 now? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, the cover is also by Winslade. It's Ant-Man and the Wasp hanging around in a Christmas tree, which is quite cute because it sums up the issue. Yeah. It's quite a cute issue in many ways. Uh, at event, does it have a title? It doesn't, does it? It's just called Ant-Man's Big Christmas, isn't well, that's it? That's its title. That's yeah. its title, yeah. At Avengers Mansion, the tree is being decorated and eggnog is being consumed as Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne answer a letter from Larry Magruder, a young man who wants a Christmas where his family don't act up. After visiting the Magruders and seeing a Christmas video, Hank gives Larry a shot of B6 that shrinks him and they decide to reenact, you guessed it, a Christmas carol. Hoping to spook the family into behaving normally, they start with the evil ant, but Larry goes a bit too far when he introduces her shrunken form to the waste from next door's dog. Know what I'm saying? 
Hank and Janet try to intervene, but the evil ant flees, promising never to be quite so sanctimonious again. Hank and Janet help out with the others, although they are still a little mean-spirited, but they get the job done. However, Larry thinks it's a little easy, so he elects not to use the shrinking gas on the twins, the most despised of his relatives, an attitude that Jan commends. Larry lures the boy into the garage where he gets the drop on them, ties them up and drops sugar water in their laps along with a bunch of ants. He then films it, promising that if they ever come back, this film of the ants attacking the meat and tooth edge will hit the internet. Ant-Man and the Wasp introduce themselves to the Gruder family and they all spend a quiet Christmas together. The end. That was quite a succinct synopsis. Of a 64-page comic. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, that's what happens. Yeah. Isn't it, really? Uh, there's some lovely little comedy bits in the opening pages of this issue, as you might expect from the writer of Back to the Future. And uh, some of the dialogue's really very funny. I like Stan Lee's card, Happy Holidays, True Believe, Enough Said. And Nelson and Murdoch, attorneys at law, have sent them a Christmas card. Yeah. And the Fantastic Four have sent them a Christmas card. And uh, Janet's like, I wonder if the X-Men do cards. <laughs> I think the X-Men are too busy being persecuted. Probably, yeah. I yeah. would have thought that they don't have time to do Christmas cards. I like the comedy as well of the Avengers putting up what is a huge tree. Spider-Man makes a one-panel appearance. You never see him again. <laughs> he's like, you do wonder why he was there. He's in his own house to decorate. I mean, he doesn't live with Aunt Mary Jane anymore, does he? So, uh, and there's some really nice banter between Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. Speedball's here. Yeah, yeah. For those of you that are missing Speedball. <laughs> and, uh, he's got to be someone's favourite character. I'm sure he is. Everybody's character is somebody's favourite. Yeah. And I hope As we're not, we learn in this issue. I hope we're not going to get uh, people diss on uh, us for Speedball. <laughs> We love Speedball. I'm sure he's 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 uh, absolutely lovely. Um, this is the stuff between Jan and uh, Hank talking about whose turn it is to go to Christmas for Christmas dinner. Actually, really rings true. Yeah. For people who have had that conversation, which side of the family do you want to spend Christmas with? I wasn't terribly sure why Jan had to walk around in her underwear. Sixty-four pages. You have to have at least one panel. Why? Why Hank's already in his pajamas? But you know, fair enough. She is more photogenic than him. There is that, yeah. I think. But that, that could just be. Uh, it could just be me. I love the scene with Captain America, where she says, "Cat, were you eavesdropping?" No, I was just standing here listening. That's <laughs> eavesdropping. Yeah. And Captain America's like, "No, I was stood here in plain view." It's not my fault you're too wrapped up in yourself to notice. Yeah. So that was uh, was very amusing. As was the page work, Cap for... Not Cap, sorry, Giant Man, because he's Giant Man at this point, and then he becomes Ant-Man later. Giant Man phones the Magruder family, and the kid's mother thinks he's a pervert. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to get information out of her about her kids. Come on, that was funny. Yeah, it was. It was I, I, I like how Jan just falls up. It's like, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. And then Larry doesn't believe her. Well, then Larry doesn't believe her. So it works out uh, that both of them aren't believed. This reminded me of Iron Man 3. Okay. Not I, where he ended up in that town at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dro he wasn't drunk, was he? No, he crashed. Armor, he crashed. Yeah. yeah, that was it. it. I don't know why it reminded me of that, but it, it just did. You know. Um, this entire issue scored for being very silly and funny and not a little mean-spirited. 
Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. What, they actually torture some of these people. I, I really like that bit. Did you? <laughs> you like that the Wasp and Ant-Man psychologically torture people. Yeah. Because it started off as It like, says a lot about you. Well, they started off, it was just like, oh, it's another light-hearted Christmas comedy. Oh, oh, wow, he's, he's, he's kind of, he's torturing Yeah, because you've got that scene where Larry's picking up his aunt with a pair of tweezers. Yeah. And dropping her a lunchbox, and then he's going to drop dog crap <laughs> on her. And it was funny. Yeah. But at the same time, you're thinking, <laughs> and even Janet's like, you went a bit far, though, dude. Well, I, I like how they both go a bit too far and they both have to remind each other. Yeah. I like the hipster aunt. Yeah. Oh, this week, she always brings people with them depending on what she's into this time. And this time she's brought uh, a bunch of people from her boyfriend's existential studies group. A Christmas tree. How pointless. <laughs> you would smack those people, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Smack them back home to read Frankly, I don't comics. care what your name is. In 50 years, we'll all be dead. <laughs> There was a favourite Danielle. Oh, but then I missed the next issue of Shade, the Changing Man. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a whole lot closer to the truth than you'll ever know. Um, it would be easy to judge this as showing the heroes in not a terribly good light. But the twins especially are actually bullies. Mm. And the rest of the family had such a sense of entitlement it was quite easy to just let this go and go with the story. And it's nice to see the Avengers taking a leaf out of Superman's book and doing something nice for people without yeah. it being this huge drama. Mm. Wouldn't it? And I learned I like the ending where Outman uh, and the Wasp go to the Magruder family yeah. and spend Christmas with them. But then say so next year we'll spend Christmas with your family. You will... The, you know the whole torturing bit? Yeah. I thought it was like really weird what he does to the twins... Because, yeah, I get it, he's doing it, but then he starts, you know, they start saying, oh, we stink, we're trash, fluss us down the toilet, oh, spit on us. <laughs> yeah, they get into it a little bit too much, <laughs> yeah. don't they? Oh, oh, we're tied up, we're trash, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're tied up, oh, make it tighter. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah. Prodding things into Larry's arse did, uh, did a few things for them. Yeah, well, maybe they like having the ants eating away at their crotch <laughs> area. You know, it starts off with ants, next thing it's gerbils. <laughs> and then it's that whole wretched gear thing. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Let's put that in there. Allegedly. Uh, this was actually fun, wasn't it? Yeah. It's not meant to be taken seriously, no. I don't think. But uh, I think they also managed to save a marriage, don't they? Yeah. Along the way. Because he does say his mum has thought about divorce. Yes, but when you look into it a little bit further than you usually would, it's quite, oh, wow, this is bleak. Yeah. Because, essentially, yeah, Han Hank and Jan save a marriage here. Without knowing it. Without knowing it. But there's a subtext, though, that basically they've said to him, no, look, Christmas should be just about you. Yeah. And you should learn to be together as a family. Forget all the hangers on. Yeah. And uh, it does. It helps have the relationship and made it work again, mm -hmm. to quote David Byrne. So it was quite enjoyable. What did you think of that? Ant-Man's uh, big Christmas. Yeah, yeah it, it did take me quite a while to get into it. Did it? Because, you know, it, I, like I said, it did start off as your standard, light-hearted Christmas comedy. And, and then it goes a bit bleak. Yeah. It's not bleak. 
Just, it goes a bit dark, doesn't it? It gets more fun, in my opinion. Yeah, but you think about <laughs> it, Back to the Future has dark moments. Biff is going to rape Lorraine. Yeah, yeah. So, you know... <laughs> I mean, I know it was the 50s, but still... Still ITV uh, material, apparently. <laughs> in an afternoon. Yeah. You, can't, you can't show a T-Rex eating a guy for toilet, but you can show a guy trying to rape you. So, Neva's story tonight was a normal kind of Christmas story, but, you know... Little Christmas schmaltz goes a long way, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So we chose stories that didn't have a lot of schmaltz in them. No. But were happy and we're uplifting in their own way. Mm-hmm. That's what we thought. Although this is another year, we have not tried eggnog. Oh, oh no, we forgot about the eggnog! <laughs> right, okay, we'll have to get some from Starbucks. Apparently, you have to have the alcohol version, though. Oh, I can't yeah. take alcohol at the minute. Ah. My medicine won't let me. Well, you, you can have the. I uh, can have the Starbucks one. You, you can, can pour some vodka in yours. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to do the eggnog thing. Maybe we'll do it at the, um, the what we've we got, got for Christmas. Christmas show. After Christmas. No, it'll still be Christmas for us. Christmas Eve. Yeah. It goes upon New Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? So, you know, still Christmas, isn't it? Well, it isn't after Christmas when having the Christmas troop is a sign of depression and not <laughs> excitement. <laughs> when it starts wilting. Yeah, yeah. You don't want like fun anymore. Yeah. Yeah, alright. Anyway, that was the Christmas episode of Hey Kids Comics for 20 14. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, because I, quite frankly, thank you very much. I needed that laugh. <laughs> that flamingo Batman game. Yeah, yeah. It was quite... And so I ended up... It was a proper Christmas episode. It was, yeah. It started with me, like, not being in the mood, and I really don't want to do a Christmas show. Let's skip to what we're doing next week. And by the end of it, <laughs> I was singing Mistletoe and Wine and snogging Grandma under the mistletoe. <laughs> So fair play. Not your grandma. No, though, no. Right? <laughs> I would just be wrong. Yes, yes. Frankly. So uh, all it remains for us to say is that we hope you all in lovely listener land have a very merry Christmas and a prosperous new year. And I hope that I do too, because this year, quite frankly, has sucked ass. And if you don't celebrate Christmas. Happy whatever it is you celebrate. We're all inclusive at Christmas time. We are, yeah. We should run out like George Bailey and yell <laughs> Merry Christmas to everybody, shouldn't we? Yeah. And the people chat back, oh, we don't support Christmas. And we should say, well, you should! <laughs> there are presents and eggnog! It's great. It's a great time to be selfish at Christmas. <laughs> and it's a great way to stay in shape. <laughs> we'll see you next week for our annual What We Got for Christmas show. Which is our favourite show of the year because we <clears> talk about things we got. For Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have to do any prep for it. We don't, it is great. It's brilliant, isn't yeah. it? There's no prep at all for that show. I, I just show up and talk and then leave again. Yeah, it's like you normally do that. Well, yeah. For really. 50 shows a year you do that. <laughs> 52. Well, 48 this year because you've edited four as we go into the back end of the year. Yeah. Because I needed a break. And you were there to provide it for <laughs> my lovely co-host. Have a good Christmas, everybody. We'll see you next year. Michael's editing this. I don't know what he's going to end it with. Be a Christmas song, I would imagine. Probably, yeah. See you later. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com, and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Yeah. <laughs>